TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to a special edition of The Permanent Record. I'm Allison Gibbs, Director of Programs and Operations for Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Our guest today is Ms. Megan Ebos. Megan is Executive Director of People for the Enforcement of Rape Laws, also known as PEARL, here in Memphis. In 2003, at the age of 16, Megan was raped in Memphis. She reported her rape to law enforcement and submitted to a forensic exam, but law enforcement did not investigate the case or test her rape kit until over nine years later. She strategically used her rape case to raise awareness of the need for policy change and to demand legislative reform. She wrote and lobbied for a bill to remove the statute of limitations for rape here in Tennessee. The bill passed unanimously in 2014 thanks largely to public outcries sparked by EVOS. In the course of her advocacy work, she further exposed over 12,000 untested rape kits in MPD custody. In 2013 and 14, she successfully persuaded the city of Memphis to allocate over $3 million of its own money to cover the cost of investigating thousands of previously ignored rape cases connected to untested rape kits. In 2015, Ebos and a group of lawyers and community organizers formed People for the Enforcement of Rape Laws. She holds a BA in English from Rhodes College and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to the Permanent Record, Megan. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. I'm so glad to be here. Um, and so today, as we know, Josh Spickler, our executive director, is our normal podcast host. But today I'm hosting a special conversation here with Megan um, because of my own personal interest in this topic and own personal interest in seeing a conversation about the intersectionality of um, race, gender, identity, um, sex, and class as it relates to the criminal justice system, as well as the nuance and the balance between the ideas of victims' rights and also the rights of the accused and those that are convicted. And so I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to have this conversation with Megan today as the leader of Pearl here in Memphis. Pearl does some really important work. And before I get ahead of myself, I would love for Megan to go ahead and give us a little bit of information about Pearl, what they do, and why she founded it in 2015. Uh, sure. Thanks, Allison. Throughout the course of being um, like publicly identified as a rape victim in Memphis, uh, a huge amount of people who had experienced sexual violence started to contact me, primarily over social media. And it became clear to me that um, while uh, my own rape case had had been prosecuted, um, the there were thousands of victims in Memphis whose rapists were still at large who could not get any communication back from the Memphis Police Department or the DA's office. Um, this was despite the DA's office and MPD and the city administration going on national news and having press conferences to the effect that they are now victim-centered. So uh, it just became more and more clear that there was not a resource in the communi community that would actually advocate for victims rather than the institutions. So um, we formed Pearl under the umbrella of the Mid-South Peace and Justice Center, which is a 35-year-old civil rights organization. 
Um, and uh, so Pearl is the only organization in Memphis that is uh, comprised of and uh, operates for people who have experienced sexual violence. And we have peer support groups every other week, um, which is the only such group for uh, sexual violence in Memphis, even though we have a rape crisis center. Um, we also um, engage in uh, criminal justice reform advocacy, uh, mainly surrounding the transparency in sexual assault policing. So um, that can take several different shapes. Um, we've been in negotiations, meeting with Mayor Strickland and some people at MPD uh, for about two years now, um, requesting specific uh, improvements to to um, the transparency and in, in investigating these cases. Um, we also have recently become, begun um, assisting people filing uh, internal affairs complaints against police officers when those officers fail to investigate their cases properly. Um, I can get into like the the advocacy piece more if you'd like. Sure, yes, and I actually had a question about that advocacy piece. Um, with the advocacy piece that you all provide, well, actually, I'll back up for a little bit because you mentioned something that I think I was aware of, but I wasn't really aware of, or maybe just hearing you say it kind of was like, whoa. So you said that even though Memphis has a rape crisis center, they don't provide any support groups or forms of yeah, support for those that have experienced uh, sexual violence against them. And your organization is the only organization in Memphis that provides that? That's correct. Um, you might see a difference between what's written on paper from the Rape Crisis Center, which mm -hmm. is a county agency, versus what is actually provided. If you look at their webpage on the Shelby County government website, um, you'll see that they claim to have victim advocates and they claim to offer support groups as needed. Mm -hmm. It's unclear when and how often those support groups meet. And uh, with regard to the victim advocacy, um, the from what I've heard from victims, the, the advocates employed by the Rape Crisis Center are Shelby County employees and will advocate for Shelby County, not for the victims. So advocates, but not necessarily what we would think would be the advocates in this situation. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And to kind of like to distinguish between something or to get a better understanding and also for folks that are listeners outside of the Memphis area, um, there is a... Uh, Memphis says no more campaign that is fairly prevalent in the city of Memphis. I'm not a native Memphian, but since I've been in Memphis, um, at least for the past couple of years, I've been aware of it and seen like the PR around it and some of the other visible things that the, those that are um, in support of the Memphis no, says no more campaign do such as, you know, walk a day or walk mm -hmm. a mile in her shoes, et cetera, which in my mind on one hand, just kind of also being newer to this space, it was like, oh, they're trying to bring light to this issue and have, mm -hmm. you know, flip the gender norms and have men walk in heels to not <laughs> be, well, in some instances, yes, it looks silly and it looks like it's making light of an issue. But, like, on one hand, I understand they're trying to make it a, a very visible thing for people to start thinking about these mm -hmm. issues. Um, but in, on another hand, I find it problematic. And as a woman, I slightly find it offensive. Um on the one principle of just thinking only you're only a woman if you're wearing heels, right? right. That's a very strange uh, uh, gendered issue for me. But 
also kind of it taking the focus away from some of the bigger issues that lie in terms of testing rape kits and actually prosecuting rape as a crime and treating it as a crime. So can you talk, and I know that you've been vocal about the Memphis Mm -hmm. says no more campaign. So can you talk about that as well? And also, you know, one would think that the Memphis says no more campaign would provide lots of resources for those that are, have, you know, experienced this sort of trauma, but it wants you to think that mm -hmm. Sure, I've actually become quite passionate about this, this uh, strain of quote unquote victim advocacy, so, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen the walk a mile in her shoes promotion and, and then the, uh, the pictures and the news coverage of uh, MPD brass and the DA walking in these clownish high heels to raise awareness. And, my, you know, my first reaction to this is uh, we are dealing with a crisis where these very people who are marching around in this activity are the ones to blame for uh, refusing to prioritize sexual violence. Um, but on a, on a like uh, on a more philosophical level, um, I, I just have to wonder like who are they trying to raise awareness to? Because everyone in Memphis who has an untested rape kit is very aware of these issues. They've lived them, and um, it seems like if law enforcement wants to raise awareness, they should direct it at themselves rather than um, this this public kind of virtue signaling display. Um, and I would also say that uh, if someone thinks like beyond a cursory level about this exercise, um, it's it's also kind of offensive, uh, as you were saying, because. Um, walking in these high heels for people who reported their rapes to Memphis law enforcement and then never heard back and essentially lived in fear for the ensuing years, it would be nice if they could take off their shoes and then be done with the activity, but they were never given that choice. And so I think it's a horrible analogy. I don't think that walking around in high heels uh, gives anyone any particular insight into what victims experience. Uh, and that's completely separate from the issue of th- that campaign, Memphis Says No More, failing to offer any actual resources, which I'd be happy to get into more if you like. Yes, definitely. And I just want to like kind of go, I'm going to be a little bit all the all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. But with actually when you're referencing, you know, the thousands of um, untested kids or victims, um, just how many from your, you know, from your time doing this work, how many um, victims of rape have kits that are untested? And also one of the one of the other things I want to have you clarify for us, too, because I think words are very powerful and are important. Yes. And I see on your site that you distinguish the difference between like between the backlog and that's what is commonly, that's what, you know, the untested kits are referred to as, as the backlog. And so you make a distinction between this is not a backlog. These are untested rape kits. And so wanting to understand why that distinction is important and just how many, you know, when you got started with Pearl, how many untested kits were there and Mm -hmm. how many still remain in Memphis. I really appreciate your attention to the language. This is something that I struggle with constantly um, the, as far as I understand, the, like the framing of this issue as a backlog comes from the United States Department of Justice, 
which um, has been administering for over 10 years a program to federally fund DNA testing at local uh, agencies and crime labs. And uh, it's very convenient for the DOJ to claim that this is a backlog because that makes it sound like uh, law enforcement just tried to send in the samples but were overwhelmed for some reason and the samples couldn't be processed. But uh, as Memphis and many other cities show, that that is far from the truth. Um, and uh, it's it's simply not a backlog. Um, I, I don't know if it needs to have its own noun. I think that it could just be termed the overall deprior. I'm sorry. I think that you could just call it more the overall um, deprioritizing of rape complaints and failure to not only process the physical evidence but also to investigate by interviewing witnesses or, or doing any, any kind of investigation and then obviously not prosecuting the cases either. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of Memphis, though, um, so there, there's a lot of language games being played around this issue. And the city, um, it, let's see, in 2013 when they first... Uh, disclosed this to the public. They claimed that they had over 12,000 untested rape kits. Um, now, as of their August 2017 uh, numbers that I'm looking at right now, um, they claim to only have 479 rape kits left untested. Mm-hmm. So uh, from from that, that might seem like great progress, Right. Um, but the city is deliberately playing around with the word test. So uh, I would like to actually like explain that if I could really quickly. Sure, yes, um, so um, under traditional forms of DNA testing, which is like in, uh, the form that Memphis is using, um, you, t- you have a biological sample and then the testing actually involves two different phases. Now, there's new technology that can do this faster and more cheaply, but Memphis is not making use of that. So let's assume that we're talking about this this standard technology uh, that Memphis is using. Um, a biological sample has to go undergo two different steps. So the first step is a screening for serology, which means uh, a screening is done on the sample to see if there's any biological material that can be detected and used for further analysis. Um, So thinking about rape kits, where a victim was recently raped and reported to the police and then consented to a forensic exam, uh, it's it's probably pretty likely that remnants of the suspect's uh, biological material will be recoverable. Um, So so that is the serology testing. So... um, but after you test for serology, that only tells you that there is biological matter present. So the second step is to take that sample and ta- and actually test the sample for the DNA. Mm-hmm. So uh, only after you do that can you get a DNA profile. And then the DNA pro- profile by itself is still not useful unless you do something with it. For example, compare it to a suspect's mm-hmm. profile or put it into CODIS, the national database, to compare against other profiles. Um, Memphis is not 
being clear about uh, their use of these profiles so at all. So what can happen is that they're doing that first level of testing yes. where like, they actually find material and they can call it, quote unquote, we've changed the number of untested kids, yes. we've reduced it, but it's not actually tested yet to yes. the level where it could be helpful in solving the case. Yes, and that's exactly okay. what that's exactly what they're doing. Um, so uh, another problem can come into play where um, they test for serology and then they are not able to find a sample. And uh, I'm looking for I'm looking at Memphis's most recent stats about this, which like should be taken with a grain of salt, but according to them, uh, 25% tested negative for serology. So like I said earlier, um, if you have a rape victim who was recently raped and came in and had a forensic exam, the chances are very high that biological material would be left behind. And um, it, this raises the question, if a quarter of these rape kits are testing negative for serology, um, why? Like, why are the samples degraded? Were they not stored properly? And I do know from the city's own admission that the the storage facility where they were keeping a lot of these rape kits had a leaky roof that uh, rain could come in through, and it had no climate control. So we know about DNA that it's very resilient, right? You can get DNA from millions of years ago. And the things that can degrade DNA are moisture and high heat, which we do have in Memphis, uh, especially if you're talking about a facility that doesn't have climate control <laughs> and has a leaky roof. So, um, and of course, Memphis hasn't answered any of the any questions about this, but uh, it, it raises a lot of questions about why so many of these are uh, negative for serology. But of course, the city is including those in their number of quote-unquote tested kits. kits. Yeah. Um, and and then as for the rape kits that the city is claiming that they have processed for DNA, they're saying that they've processed 48% for DNA. So, I mean, that's that's good. It, it doesn't tell us that what they've done with the DNA profile, mm-hmm. and it certainly doesn't tell us uh, if the cases are actually being investigated beyond the rape kit. But, um, but yeah, it's interesting that the city is, on one hand, saying that they've tested 48% for DNA, but only have 4% that need to be tested. That math doesn't quite... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a math major, but... Um, I'm not either, that but... That math I, doesn't quite um, add up for me. Yeah, um, but so anyway, when you see any talk about how many rape kits they've tested, unless they, they explicitly say that they've tested for DNA, uh, they, you should not uh, assume that they have. And it's, and it's not been tested. And just kind of to, to um, wrap that up for myself, it's not been tested in a way that can be used either for the victim or for the suspect, which kind of is an interesting and I think a great way to kind of jump into something else um, that we were talking a little bit about before we got started recording with the podcast. Um, And it's going to seem like I'm going out of left field, but I'm going to come back to it and how it connects. Um, And so this balance between um, the rights of the victim and the rights of those that are accused. And so when you were kind of explaining about the DNA, um, testing DNA in a timely matter and, and sorry, testing um, samples and mm-hmm. testing rape kits in a timely matter and then testing them to the level of 
where you're getting it tested for DNA and running it through CODIS and trying to match it with suspects, it does one thing for the victim, but it also does something for those that are accused of committing the crime. Um, and one of the things that we talked about is kind of this weird place where on the surface people paint Just City as just a, you know, a pro um, defendant, pro criminal organization, pro, you know, don't have any laws, just let everybody be free. And on the, and I'm, I'm being very loose with my words here, but then on the other side, people paint um, victims, advocacy organizations with a broad brush in terms of, you know, lock them all up and throw away the key and every, everybody should be punished. And I think both, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you today is because I think that Pearl and Just City are organizations that really kind of try to live in that nuanced space of, we have this certain lens to us, but we understand that justice in its full state of being fair and its full state of actually um, living up to the ideals that are set out in the Constitution, it has to work well on both sides. Mm -hmm. Both of the rights of the victim and those of the rights of the accused have to be um, balanced and met. And so when we're talking about DNA and when we're talking about samples being tested timely in a timely fashion and DNA being tested in a timely fashion, that goes a long way, too, for the fair... um, for seeing a justity for those that are that are um, facing charges, right? Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about you know kind of your own perspective and Pearl's perspective in something that someone would be like, they're talking about victims' rights. Why are you talking to this woman from Justity that works oh. on you know in the in the in the defense space? Yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, Pearl works. Pearl is probably not a victim advocacy organization, even though it advocates for uh, reforms that would positively impact victims. Um, When you're talking about the criminal justice system, uh, I mean, there are victims' rights. Like, for example, we have victims' rights in the Constitution of the state. But when you're talking about the criminal justice system, the defendant is the only person in the picture whose rights the state is trying to take away. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, um, I think both Pearl and Just City advocate for the criminal justice system to function. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's all. All we want is for it, it to properly function. And it's not, it's not functioning. So I kind of view victims' rights as... Uh, flowing from the proper functioning of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about a criminal case, um, the person who is in jeopardy of having their liberty taken away is the defendant, not the victim. That's not to minimize what the victims experience, but... In my opinion, if the criminal justice system functions effectively for defendants, that will benefit victims. So, for example, if you have a rape case that was reported to law enforcement Mm -hmm. and then law enforcement uh, fails to interview possible witnesses uh, and fails to investigate leads and then 15 years later goes back and tries to investigate this case. Uh, that That is going to um, be detrimental to the victim or the defendant's ability to uh, mount a defense, but it's also obviously it's very detrimental to the victim who has to uh, 
essentially live in fear and not feel that the police are investigating what happened to them. In in one of the things, and again, kind of referencing our previous conversation, um, and one of the main reasons why I just think of this particular issue of sexual assault and sexual violence against women, and for myself, um, I'm a black woman, and this intersection in this idea of race and gender as it comes to the criminal justice system and from my time as a student and just also in my own circles and community, it's always this, it's been this question of, am I a woman first or am I black first? Because as a person of color and particularly as a black person in America, in the American context, you have to feel as though you have to choose between your race and your gender and when it comes to certain issues and specifically issues of rape molestation, violence against women is one of those um, areas. And so on one hand, as someone who wants, who thinks about the idea of redemption and the idea of zealous defense and innocent and proven, until proven guilty is like the core functioning in bed, you know, the the bedrock of our justice system um, and believes in that very much as a woman who time after time after time sees rape belittled and sees sexual assault made light of um i don't always necessarily i know personally don't always have the same idea around like i know i have that ideal in my head but when it comes to like an actual case or the nitty-gritty of it or like thinking about like if this were to happen to me or friends and family of mine i don't think i would be you know honestly speaking as forgiving or as justice minded as i would want to be Um, and then when I also, but then I have to color that again with my racial identity as a black person in America, where you consistently see the justice system disproportionately impact people of color, disproportionately impact men of color, some rightly, some a lot incorrectly. Um, this idea and these conversations happen in black households, black churches, Um, black friend groups of not reporting violence that has taken place against women, whether it's domestic abuse or it's, you know, stranger sexual violence or molestation because you have to protect the black man because the system is going to, um, the system is already hard against him. Right. And I mean, you know, intimate partner violence, that's a thing that happens within every community. Um, It's not just a phenomenon that is unique to communities of color, but you have the extra layer of race where the reporting of intimate partners or of family friends or the clergy or of the church, um, those, it it gets, it gets messier. And then when you add the extra layer to it. And so I just kind of wanted to have a conversation, like as a final wrapping up sort of conversation about that, um, that space, like what, and I know, um, you're currently involved in a lawsuit where a lot of the plaintiffs or a lot of those sorry, that are joining the suit are black women. Um, and just how do you think, you know, race has impacted their stories in your story and also the work that you do for Pearl? And again, for our listeners that are not in Memphis, um, Memphis is a lar- is a um, predominantly African-American black city. And so, it's really important to talk about 
these issues as they relate to race because of the context that we're in. So I just kind of wanted to share some of my frame of mind around that and then also just kind of get your perspective doing this work as a white woman who's, um, you know, had this happen and you now are working in this space, but how has race impacted it from your perspective? Mm -hmm. I think those are really important questions. Um, Like, again, as a white middle-class woman, I... Um, I feel conflicted about being such a prominent voice in this sphere. Um, my experience with law enforcement was horrible, uh, and it's been very well documented in the media. But I, again, reported my assault as a white middle-class teenager who took honors classes and you know, I had I had no criminal record. No one in my family had a criminal record. And I just, I know that, that my experience uh, was probably way less harsh than it could have been if I had uh, been a member of a different community. Um, and when you say, like, way less harsh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, for example, um, when I reported my rape, uh, the police accused me of lying. They didn't, they just said, like, we don't think you were raped. I, like, I wasn't, I didn't have, like, outward, outwardly visible injuries. Mm-hmm. And I think they thought that I was, like, not hysterical or something. And they, or, like, they were just using that as a pretext not to investigate, possibly. But they threatened to arrest me because uh, they said that I could go to jail for false reporting. And, um, my mom happened to be in the house at that time and she overheard this and she intervened and, and she said, she said, no, she's, and like also when they interviewed my mom, they, they were asking her questions like, has your daughter had like incidents in the past where she made things up? Like, does she have problems at school? Does she, has she like gotten in trouble with the law before? Um, and, the police, uh, I later found out, like, actually called my teachers and my principal to see if I had, like, skipped class or anything. Like, I was, I, like, I was so afraid of doing anything wrong, like, in school. Like, I'd never done anything like that. But, um, so, like, back to them, like, interrogating me, my mom was able to vouch for me and mm-hmm. say, like, my daughter has never had any problems lying. She's never claimed anything like this before. She has not gotten in trouble in school. I really think that if my mom hadn't vouched for me, I could have been arrested. Mm-hmm. And compare my situation to someone who's, who maybe doesn't have that kind of relationship with their mother or whose mother is not as active in their life as is required to be able to vouch for this, or for someone who had gotten in trouble in school before, or uh, for someone who had uh, trouble making it to school regularly. Um, I think that the outcomes would be very different uh, if I had not been privileged in the way that I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And then taking it to... Years later, when um, when it became clear that the police and DA's office were not being forthright about how they had handled my case, um, and I, I started to feel that it was necessary to 
uh, escalate the publicity against them. Uh, so I started going on the local news to um, describe my experience. Um, I do, I, I really believe that my story would not have gained so much traction if I had not been a middle-class white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there are a lot of cultural assumptions about young women of color or even young children of color. Like, for example, uh, the young black girls, uh, they're, they're fast, they mature faster, and I, I hear they're more sexually they're more, Yes, yeah. yes. And like to contrast to my case again, like not that the police investigated, but I mean, I had never had a boyfriend or anything like that. Um, uh, I, I just I feel that my case would have had a different and worse. Not my case, but my experience reporting would have had a different outcome. And then, um, you know, I do again think that uh, being a white middle-class woman has uh, has caused people to pay attention to this issue because it's kind of like, well, I can understand why the police wouldn't believe that per- person, but how could they not believe you? Mm-hmm. So it's like a double-edged sword sometimes because it's providing visibility to the issue is being made, and that's important, but mm-hmm. your the way you look on the outside is impacting yes. that and it should be, people should be heard regardless. Right. Yeah. Right. Or imagine if I had been a sex worker, mm-hmm. it, it would have been completely different. I mean, I don't think that, or even if I didn't present the way that I present, I, I just don't feel that the media and the public would have picked up on my experience in the way that they did. Cool. All right. And so we have, I know I'm wrapping up on time. Just one more question um, before we come to our close. And so um, at Just City, when I when I started with Just City in 2015, we kind of launched this in a Just City campaign, which is um, basically people writing on a piece of paper in a Just City blank. And depending on where I am or what the event is or who the person is, the answers are always different. But it's always, and sometimes they don't seem as though they're you know, talking about specifically like criminal justice reform, changing X, Y, Z piece of legislation. But it's not about that. It's whatever you think a just city is, is a just city. And that can come to fruition by having a more equitable and a fair justice system. But I always like to ask people that question for you. What happens in a just city when you close your eyes and envision it? What does it look like? And so from our conversation today and from the perspective that you have um, working with Pearl and, and doing this very, very important work, what does a just city look like to you? To me, in a just city, uh, law enforcement would investigate uh, rape complaints as vigorously as they investigate, for example, drug crimes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Megan. I appreciated having you on our show this Um, afternoon. Um, That was Megan Ebos in conversation and on the permanent record. Megan is executive director of the people of people for the enforcement of rape laws. My thanks to her for taking time out to chat with us. Visit Pearl's website, enforcerapelaws.org for more information about Pearl and resources to learn about America's hidden rape crisis, why it matters and ways you can take action. 
Many thanks to Gil Worth and the OAM Network for providing support and distribution of the permanent record. They are the best podcast network in Memphis. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. As usual, special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for the permanent record. His duo, Me and Leah, have a record out. Find it on SoundCloud and Spotify and look for them live around Memphis. I'm Allison Gibbs, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Watch for our new website coming soon at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.